Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 132. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 132 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Ian Shepard, who is the uh, founder of the website known as Production Advice, productionadvice.co.uk. He's also a mastering engineer who's worked with a load of people, everyone from Keen to Tricky, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Deep Purple Culture Club, Porcupine Tree, King Crimson, New Order. Yeah, he's got some nice credits underneath his belt. He's also the owner of Mastering Media Limited, and he's also the host of the Mastering Show podcast, which I encourage you to check out. But that's not all. He's actually a a big proponent of, I guess, what you would say is optimal audio dynamics for your music. And so he uh, is the man behind Dynamic Range Day. Uh, If you haven't checked that out, you can... uh, of course, go to the website, which is dynamicrangeday.co.uk. You can read all about that. It already happened in 2017. That was on March 31st. Of course, there will be another day in 2018. But uh, yeah, check it out, dynamicrangeday.co.uk. He's also got a plug-in. He's got all kinds of stuff going on. It's called uh, Ian Shepard's Perception Plugin, and I'll include a link to that if you'd like to uh, buy that. That'll be in the show notes. So yeah, he's just... Uh, he's. He's a, like I say, he's a fierce proponent of uh, dynamics in music and fighting against or ending the loudness wars. He uh, and he's got a lot to say about it. So uh, we will talk extensively about that, uh, as well as the other stuff we typically talk about on the show. But uh, Ian Shepard coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, let's pause for a little sip of coffee. Mm, killed that off. That's that uh, Drogen Summers blend from. Uh, Pete Droge. Thanks, Pete. Love that coffee. Anyhow, um, on to other things. So I announced some time ago that I am going to go to Mix with the Masters with Chad Blake. And of course, if you listen to the show, you know what a fan of Chad Blake's work I am. Obviously looking forward to that trip very much. But when I announced it, I told you I'd tell you about the process and all the things that are involved to go. And so obviously getting there is key. So I have to fly into Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris to get there. Now getting there from the United States is, uh, can be costly, but here's a trick and this can apply to any kind of, uh, travel you're doing, whether, you know, uh, regionally, wherever you live or internationally. And, and the trick is this. Now I'm a, I'm a fan of Android phones, uh, and the whole Google system. Some of you may have some kind of hatred for Google. I don't know. Well, I'm not going to get into that. Anyways, I'm a Google fan. So as I started to search for flights, round trip flights from San Francisco International, also known as SFO, um, Google, of course, would track my searches. I wouldn't just go to an airline's website. I would go to Google and say, you know, SFO to CDG, round trip, these dates. And of course it pulls up a host of information, all the different flights that go there. And, you know, you've got your typical ones, Delta, United, um, Delta via Air France, et cetera, et cetera. And Alaska, Alaska Air as well. So I started looking early on for flights and brought up the initial price was going to be like $1,200 round trip. I was like, 
okay, so my expectations were kind of set on that. Well, lo and behold, as a person who is tied into the whole Google ecosystem, I started to get notifications on my phone where it said, hey, by the way, the flight that you've been tracking has gone down. And it would say, you know, it's gone down to $1,000, we'll say. And I was like, oh, okay, 1000 bucks. Well, that's, that's pretty good. And I thought, well, I'll just keep watching it. Maybe it'll go down further. Well, then it went back up to 1200 And so I kind of scratched my head and thought, oh, maybe I should have bought it 1000 And then it went back down to 1000 And I, once again, I hesitated and I was like, oh, I don't know yet. I don't really have, I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to come in. And I started to, you know, get caught up in the logistics and the, the fine details of when do I fly in? And so uh, long story short, uh, I got a, another notification that said, your flight has gone up to $1,400. And then I was like, oh shit, why did I do that? Why did I wait? Ugh, so mad at myself. So I was like, well, I waited this long. I might as well wait a little longer. So it goes down again. I get a notification. In fact, I got it last night. And it said, the flight you've been tracking has gone down to $560. And I was like, holy shit. Okay, now's the time to buy the ticket. I told my wife and she said, you better get in there and get on that computer. Or you're going to be kicking yourself if you don't get that flight. So there it is, 567 round trip from San Francisco to Paris. How about that? That's a great deal. Point is, is if you're looking for a flight and you know you're going to go somewhere ahead of time, start Googling it and get that search in there so it can send the notifications to your phone. I don't know how it works on an iPhone. I think you have to make sure that you do have a Gmail account and you're tied in with all that. So make sure and do that. So there you go. Now, the next thing I got to do is book a train because I have to go to the city once I get to Paris, before I actually do mix with the masters, I have to get to the city that it's close by to. And that is a city. And I'm probably going to say this in a bastardized French accent, but Avignon, uh, which is an old city. Of course, it's an old city. It's in Europe. And I'm looking forward to that, but I got to take a train ride to get there. It's like a three hour train ride. And that should be interesting and, and fun and looking forward to that, of course. So now I got to book the train and get the right train and when booking a train that far in advance, not all trains are available. So, or not all, you know, not all dates are available to book. So that's presenting a little bit of a bottleneck at this point, but I'll get it figured out. Anyways, that's my Google flight tip of the day. And uh, that's my update on Mix with the Masters. And as you all know, we sponsor, Working Class Audio sponsors, the Gear Slut sub forum known as Audio Life. It's full of all kinds of things that we talk about on the show, plus you know, other little hacks and stuff that uh, might help you in your workflow or your outside life outside of the studio or, you know, outside of your, your audio career. You know, one tip I do want to give you about that, and uh, I should actually post this on, on the forum there. There's, you know, keeping track of what people owe you or billing people. There's a number of ways you could do it. And obviously there's a lot of free ways that you could do it. Um, you could do it through Excel spreadsheets or, you know, you create or a word document. It's very simple to create an invoice. I think what I have trouble with is tracking them. Uh, and I forget about them. Obviously I could create something in an Excel spreadsheet and that would be, you know, obviously a totally doable thing. Uh, but another option, and I've, uh, been doing this for a while now is I use, uh, thing from a company called Simple Invoices. Let me look at the URL here because I know it's not .com. Simple Invoices. 
let's see, .io is what it is. And I pay uh, a yearly fee for it. I pay a hundred bucks a year. And it's just a place where I can create an invoice, send it, track it, see if it's been opened or not. I can see reports on what I've been paid, all that stuff. It's, you know, you you set up clients. It's, it's great for that. So check it out. Um, I should, uh, I'll post a link in the uh, show notes as well. And possibly I'll go over to the, uh, to the audio life uh, sub forum on gear sluts and post it so others can take advantage of it. Um, yeah. And before we get into our interview with Ian Shepard, I do want to remind you it's, uh, as this comes out on Monday, June 26, 2017 on June 30th, uh, is the end of the Apollo rack dream studio promotion that our friends at universal audio are putting on. And that's where if you buy an Apollo, you're going to get some extra plugins at a particular value. So if you buy an Apollo eight duo or an Apollo firewire, you get a 12, $1,200 in value worth of plugins. If you buy uh, an Apollo eight P an Apollo eight quad or an Apollo 16, you can get up to $2,000. And if you buy any two Apollo interfaces from all of the group, you can get $3,500 in plugins for, you know, to add to your account. So that's quite a deal that ends on June 30th. So if you were planning on buying it, go ahead and do that. Get on it, get on it as soon as you can. That's the Apollo rack dream studio promo that, uh, is, can be found at uaudio.com. So make sure and get on that. So we got to jump into it. So let's do that. Ian Shepard here on the working class audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast officially. Thank you. In an uncharacteristic fashion, I actually wrote down some not legitimate questions, but actually little bits of phrases and acronyms to talk to you about. And I'm just okay. going to jump right into it on this loudness thing because I'm. Uh, I think that that's a what a lot of people know you for. Mm-hmm. The loudness wars is, and let's just let's treat it for now just as something that maybe the newbie, the new student listener listening has no clue what we're talking about. And obviously we won't go down that path forever because most people know what we're talking about. Let's talk about the concept of what are we considering the loudness wars for the, for the new person listening? I see the loudness wars as, well, it's not my phrase, but somebody coined the phrase, the sonic arms race, where there's this idea, which is based in fact, but is very misleading, that louder sounds better. And I think the way that it's misleading is that people have this idea that loudness always sounds better, and that's not true. Louder only sounds better when you have enough headroom to do it cleanly and artistically. In the real world, most PAs these days have enough headroom that you can just crank it up as far as you like. Most hi-fis and earbuds and all the rest of it can handle the kind of level you want to throw at them. But in the digital domain, we have this hard ceiling of zero dB peak, you know, the the scale you see in your DAW. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that when you get past a certain point in terms of the level you're putting into a file, you have to start making some compromises. The the sound is either going to clip, meaning it's going to go over or try to go over zero and the tops of the waveforms are going to get sliced off, or you're going to have to use some limiting or some saturation or some other kind of process to control that level. And that works up to a point and can be beneficial up to a point. But when you get beyond that point, that's when I think the sound starts to suffer. And that's what's happened with the loudness war. You know, back in the day when I first got into mastering uh, more than 20 years ago now, the levels were quite sane by modern standards. And it was quite easy to control the peaks 
and keep everything nice and balanced in terms of the dynamics. And then over the years, the levels crept up and up and up to the point now where some of the stuff that we're seeing released, the loudness of the music, and we can kind of talk about how you measure that if you'd like, is only maybe four or five dBs lower than the maximum peak level. So you're you're trying to fit the entire music signal basically into four or five dBs. And when you think that even an analog cassette has 30 or 40 dBs of signal to noise ratio, that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, we're really trying to pack it into the top end of the, the available peak headroom. And so the loudness war is just the tendency over time for that to get worse and worse. And it happened with vinyl. Um, it's happening again with digital. I imagine it will happen with other formats. Maybe, maybe not um, because of the new kind of loudness management stuff that's coming online. We could talk about that as well. Some of the examples of what we would call excessively loud records, you may, you may have a different example of this, but I would say that maybe this whole thing came to a head when uh, uh, Metallica's Death Magnetic came out, and then it became kind of plainly obvious even to the layperson that, wow, this sounds like shit. <laughs> Well, there are some people who like the sound of that record. But yeah, that was the that's kind of the poster child. I have to take some of the credit for that. I think I was the first person to talk about it online and that got picked up by Music Radar and then that got picked up by Wired magazine and that got picked up by The Guardian newspaper here and it eventually ended up in the like the Wall Street Journal and everywhere. That story kind of went everywhere. And that was a kind of unique set of circumstances not only because it was a particularly loud and distorted record because you don't have to be that distorted. They, they made the decision to be really loud and really distorted. But also there were these two versions of it. So there was this alternative version available to people that was part of the Guitar Hero PlayStation game. And when I first heard people saying, oh, that sounds better, I kind of, you know, I, I was quite dismissive because I, I thought these guys are just listening to it through a TV or whatever and not able to hear the problems of the original release. But when I got to hear the files, sure, sure enough, it turned out what had happened is the PlayStation files had been kind of um, sourced from the, I guess, the, the mixing team at a much earlier stage in the process, like months before the final mixes were done. Um, and because of the way the game works, they were stems as well. So they, there's no way they could have been the final mix files. And they were much cleaner. So people had this ability to compare what might have been, which normally is not the case. You know, normally you hear a CD or uh, you know, an MP3 and it is what it is. Um, I mean, Brian Eno, who's somebody I have a huge amount of respect for, has said that distortion and all these other faults are fine because once people have it in a finished product, they assume that it's artistic intent. Again, another unique thing about Death Magnetic was that people didn't assume it was artistic intent. Uh, the Metallica fans assumed it was a technical fault. Um, and about 20,000 of them signed a petition asking for it to be remixed and remastered. <laughs> um, so, and, and then the final unique thing about that, I mean, it was the kind of perfect storm in terms of making a news story, if you like, which I think is why it got as much notoriety as it did. The final thing was that Ted Jensen, who mastered it, got quoted on a forum um, in what was supposed to have been a private response. And somebody used his his comment without uh, asking his permission, saying that he wasn't proud of the job and that it had, it had you know basically been pushed really hard when it arrived with him and there was nothing else he could do with it. So, yeah, that was, I mean, and the, the, since then, to be honest, prior to then as well, there have been plenty of other examples of stuff that have been as loud, louder, as distorted, more distorted. But kind of all of those things came together to make that the the kind of the perfect example, if you like. So another one that, 
is actually on a Wikipedia list of, of examples is uh, Alice in Chains, uh, Black Gives Way to Blue, which, you know, I'm a fan of Alice in Chains and uh, I early on bought the, uh, the single uh, that they had released, which was the, the first single off the album, um, Check My Brain, I believe it's called. By the way, that's my bulldog in the background snoring and such. So <laughs> sorry about that. Anyways, it did strike me that, wow, this is kind of loud, but I, I got to be honest, it did not stop me from listening to it. I, I still enjoy the song. Now, if I listen to it from a more critical viewpoint on my studio monitors, then I've got a little bit different opinion as opposed to listening on earbuds, even through a good player like a pono player do you have a pono player i own a pono player you're the one who bought one yes i am <laughs> do you like it i have enjoyed it quite a bit and it's been a good sounding player it's an awkward shape i just thought i would dive in and be on the bleeding edge of hi-fi consumer audio and give it a shot and i did and uh unfortunately uh you know neil has taken the company in a different direction now but, you know, it still works, and even MP3s sound pretty decent on it, considering that the converters are much better than they are out of my phone or any other devices I've owned. It's funny. I mean, I, I said that as a joke, but I mean, I, I kind of feel a bit sad about all of that because I think Neil's heart is absolutely in the right place. I don't know a ton about D2A conversion or any of that stuff, but from what I can tell, you know, it was, you know, the reason it's an awkward shape is so that it could fit large capacitors in there, I think, which are an important part of getting really good sound. Everything about it was great. I think the 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 problem that I saw as soon as he started talking about it was that he was almost kind of mistargeting the the publicity, you know, talking about the high fidelity stuff, the the 92 uh, 96 kilohertz and, you know, and higher sample rates. Because the truth is that most most people think 16-bit 44.1 sounds fantastic. The, the key thing for me is that it's lossless as compared to, say, MP3. Yeah. Um, so I think all these people who were kind of declaring this night and day difference when they were hearing the music and listening to the players were probably comparing MP3s with almost anything else. And that difference is there. And I think if you combine that difference with the really high-quality components... You know, that's a realistic kind of tangible product with a real benefit. But by kind of making all these claims for the the extra quality uh, gained by going up to 24-bit and up to those higher sample rates, I kind of feel like that was almost a red herring that kind of derailed the whole thing a little bit. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to um, get back onto, onto a tangent. It, 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 I don't think it's too much of a tangent because it does raise a lot of questions about, you know, what is important. And I have never been one who could go on a hi-fi rant with any kind of passion for it because i was always a little skeptical like well what is the average person here who you know is it like wine you know some people you know can claim to know all the the different nuances of wine tasting well that's for them but the average person you know can be happy with uh, i guess lesser quality wines but mm -hmm. i would put more faith in dynamic range and good quality converters than I would put in high res. I'd rather have the former than, than the latter. I just don't really care. In fact, I sucked in all my CDs as FLAC files and it was just great to go back and listen through all that stuff and not listen to it online. That was a pleasure. It's very hard to quantify this stuff because I've done you know blind tests on myself because I, I like to not make claims that I can't back up. And there is some stuff where I can pretty much 
always hear the difference between an MP3 and a WAV file, and there's some stuff where I struggle. I think you're absolutely right. The real irony of this, actually, Andrew Sheps, who mixed Death Magnetic, um, and uh, I've never met him, but from, from all intents and purposes, he seems to be a lovely guy. Um, oh, yeah, <clears throat> like salt-of-the-earth guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, doing some great stuff, educating and, and informing people about what he does and why he does it and all the rest of it. Um, and his analogy for the the whole lossy, you know, data compression, MP3 and all the rest of it, um, is to think of a sentence where, you know, you've seen those things on online where you, you chop out the vowels. Um, and you still know what it says. And you still know what the words say. And then you start jumbling the, the letter order up and you can still read it. And the thing is, you can do all this kind of crazy stuff and we can still figure out what it is that the message says, but it gets harder and harder. It becomes more and more hard work to decode it, right? The brain has is, to work harder, in other words. Exactly. There's more kind of processor overload, if you or overhead, if you, if you like, involved in in decoding the message. And he, I think that's a great analogy for what happens with uh, lossy compression and audio. So even when in a blind A-B test you might struggle to tell the difference between an MP3 and a lossless file, I still think... You know, I have the same thing. I kind of, every most of the time, I listen to stuff from an iPod or from my iTunes library on, on the, the computer while I'm working, say. And then every so often, there's something that I don't have in the library or what, you know, I want to go back and listen to the original thing or it's new, maybe, and I put the CD and play it. And maybe I'm just imagining it, but I just kind of feel like I relax a bit, you know, and maybe just settle into it and listen a bit more. But the, the dynamics thing is fascinating. So the, the recent experience I had... So I do this thing called Dynamic Range Day, which is an annual event kind of to raise awareness of the, the, the things we're talking about. And I do an award each year. And last year, the award, the award was won by uh, James Blake for his album, The Colour in Anything, which is an amazing sounding album. And I just had this really interesting experience leading up to deciding that that was gonna, what was going to win the award, where at the same time as that album came out, Radiohead had released their new album. Mm -hmm. And I had I was listening to both of these things in the background just because I enjoy them musically. You know, I would, I would have them. I'd be writing blog posts or I'd be answering emails. You know, that that kind of stuff. And I'd have them in the background. And the Radiohead, I just kept turning it down and turning it down because it just kept annoying me and making me ratty and irritable. Even though I actually really like the music. In contrast, James Blake, I just kept turning it up mm -hmm. and turning it up and turning it up. And it got to the point where I was listening to James Blake at my full mastering level, which is not blisteringly loud, but it's, you know, neighbor-botheringly loud. <laughs> um, and uh, and that, so James Blake had more dynamics. You know, the Radiohead album was very, very squashed. You know, Bob Ludwig did an amazing job to get it to sound as good as it did, considering how loud they made him make it. But yeah, the, the, this compressed stuff in the dynamic sense, as opposed to data compression, I just find it fatiguing. And it just, yeah, it makes you want to turn it down instead of turn it up. Whereas the dynamic stuff, you want to crank it up which i think is you know the whole point and yeah to get back to your question i mean i haven't heard that alice in chains album and you need to be a bit careful about wikipedia lists because i saw like there's a paul simon or there was a paul simon album on that list last time i listened and it's probably pretty loud for his stuff in comparison to say that you know the, the stuff he did years ago uh, but i didn't think it was loudness war loud or distressingly loud and i think you're absolutely right just with, with all of these things you know Back in the day, we would listen to music on AM radios and people these days listen to music on their phones. It's not like they're choosing that quality because they love it. It's because they're prepared to put up with that quality because they love the music. 
And I think the same thing is true of of loudness and MP3 compression, all the rest of it. We are prepared to put up with this stuff because we love the music. You know, the the music trumps everything. But there, there is some stuff that I find really hard to listen to, I have to say, just because it's squashed so flat. It's so reined in and restricted and like in a box. I would I would totally agree with that. Let's talk about it from the working perspective of this and the reality. And some artists just want their shit loud. They do. And 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 it's hard to fight that, like in, in, at least in the mastering process. And I always feel like when I have to put on, you know, the the deep explanation engineering hat type type uh you know perspective and start to sell artists on well why don't we make it a little quieter so there's a little more dynamic range here and their concern is well it's gonna sound it's gonna sound quieter and it, it frustrates me to have to put on a sales pitch for the whole thing yeah i agree so my, my top tip for getting around that is what i call the itunes test so itunes has this thing called sound check which is Apple's version of this thing called loudness management or loudness normalization. The idea is, so the, the reason for it is that uh, big changes in loudness piss people off. The BBC, I saw a report that said that 27% of their, the complaints they receive about programming in general is about the audio and specifically loudness. You know, that's a huge proportion, you know, way more than offensive language or violence or any of the other stuff that people complain about in terms of broadcast content. People get annoyed if with big changes in loudness or if they i mean it's it's all muddled up because they get complaining if they can't hear stuff as well so if things are too quiet but obviously anybody who's running a streaming service or a tv station or whatever distributing music wants to keep their users happy so they want to remove the things that piss people off so what they're doing these days is they're measuring the loudness of the stuff that's being broadcast or the stuff that's being streamed and they're more or less evening it out. And Apple's version of that is called Soundcheck. So what you can do if you're trying to, rather than kind of launch into the whole, you know, because I know what you mean, the sales pitch, you know, and all the rest of it. And you, people almost resist you more, you know, because you're arguing with them. Mm-hmm. They almost get more entrenched. So it's kind of a losing battle. So I tend nowadays, I kind of say, well, look, here's two versions, right? Or if they've given me a reference version, I say, look, here's my master of this thing. Import this and the thing you want to compare it with, maybe it's the louder version, whatever into iTunes, enable sound check, go away and have a good meal because it takes several hours the first time you turn it on to scan through your entire music library. And don't worry, it won't hurt anything. You can switch it off again afterwards. Then come back and listen to those two things with sound check enabled. What they then hear is the things will be more or less the same loudness. Actually, sound check is a little bit quirky. So the chances are if they've given you a super loud reference, it will probably end up sounding a bit quieter than the more dynamic thing you just did for them. But even if you do two versions of the same song, one of them more dynamic and one of them louder, in that case, you should get a pretty reliable match in the loudness between the two. Chances are they will prefer the sound of the dynamic one because it's got more peak headroom to play with, you know? I mean, the punch and the life and the excitement in music comes from the contrast between the loud and the soft bits. You don't want too much contrast because then you lose all the quiet details and it doesn't translate to listening to in the car or, you know, quietly in the background that kind of stuff so it's it's a balancing act but if you compare stuff that's perfectly balanced with stuff that's loudness war squashed most people prefer the stuff that's perfectly balanced because it has more space more life more punch more impact all these things and that's really effective because people can just hear it for themselves you know you're not trying to persuade them you just say okay here are two things switch on sound check take a listen see which one you prefer 
what will happen is they come back and they say, yeah, but nobody uses soundcheck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I prefer the more dynamic one, but so what? And then you say, but okay, but that's what YouTube does. That's what Spotify does. That's what Tidal does. That's what Pandora does. That's what radio and TV do. The only places that don't do it yet, well, CDs are never going to do it, except that people listening do it themselves. You know, if you put on a CD that's way louder than the one before, you go, whoa, that's loud. And you turn it down yeah. and you don't think about it again. The one place is SoundCloud. <laughs> and the engineers at SoundCloud have told me it's on their list. They will be implementing uh, loudness management at some point. And um, one of those places... You know, different people listen to things in different places. Some people listen on YouTube, some people listen on Spotify, wherever. One of those places will mean something to people. And they go, oh, hang on. Right. Because, yeah, most of our fans come from YouTube, you know, mm -hmm. or Spotify or whatever. Oh, and then they go away and think about it. And I found that really successful. Ian Shepard here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to talk headphones with our friends from Audio-Technica for a sec. So let me uh, bend your ear for a sec here. I always talk about the ATH-M40Xs. You know how much I love those. But I got to tell you, when I go on my trip to mix with the Masters, I plan on uh, getting myself, for that long flight, a pair of ATH-MSR-7NCs. Those are the uh, uh, headphones with active noise cancellation. That will help me keep my sanity on a very long flight. And uh, probably allow me to sleep a little better too. So I'm going to pick myself up a pair of those. And while I was scoping the headphones out, I was reminded that not only do they have a ton of headphones on the Audio-Technica website, which is at audio-technica.com, but I'm reminded that they do have these fantastic packs for studio owners over there. ATH Pack 5 is what it's called. And it's basically, it's a pack of headphones. And in this case, a five pack, hence the name ATH Pack 5, right? Got it. So uh, you can buy it right off the website, $2.99 for a pack of five. And uh, they come, for example, here's the AT the pack that I'm looking at here. Comes with uh, one pair of ATH M50Xs and then four pairs of ATH M20Xs. So if you run a studio and, and or you are somebody who is in need of multiple pairs of headphones at a good price, this is where to find it. The ATH Pack 5 there in the Audio-Technica website. So headphones, headphones, headphones. Yes. So many headphones that they have. I love it. And uh, I can geek out endlessly on that website. <laughs> so check it out for yourself. Obviously, audio-technica.com. Let's get back into it here with Ian Shepard here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We have ha have this problem or had this problem. Well, it's still a problem because... You know, you're still as a as a mastering engineer, and even in as mixing engineers, we're we're constantly you know trying to meet expectations of the artist to make sure that what we're giving the artist sounds somewhat similar to stuff they're listening to. Obviously, that's a problem if Death Magnetic is their point of reference, but unless they turn soundcheck on, unless they turn soundcheck on, so then that raises another question. It's like, well. Okay, so what if I so if I if I'm mastering something for somebody and they come back and say, well, actually, I, d I want it, I do want it loud because that's fine. You know, these services will turn it down, and so be it. You know, what it, what what's the argument then? What how can we discuss? Well, this it? is this is where I'm a bit of an outlier um, because I have this conversation early. It's like the first question that I ask people is, do you care about loudness? What's your view on loudness? Do you have any reference tracks? And if 
they from the outset are asking me for something that I think uh, the music can't take, doesn't serve the music well, then, you know, I, I say, listen, you know, I, I genuinely think you'll get a better result if you go to somebody else, if that's your goal, you know, and I lose far less work than you might imagine with that approach, but I, it does mean I lose some clients. Um, for me, I've just found over time that's the right approach because I just don't get any satisfaction from doing the super loud stuff. I have full respect for somebody like Bob Ludwig who does two or three versions. They choose the version they like and he does what they want. Um, and I think, especially if your clients are major labels rather than individual artists or independents or whatever, that might be more of a factor. But for me, I just, because, you know, I've, I've been there. You, yeah, it sounds great. Can you turn it up a bit? Okay, turn it up a bit. Yeah, now it doesn't sound as good. Well, we'll ease it back a bit there. That sounds better. Okay, but it's not loud enough. And you just go round and round in circles. And, and if you get really good at giving people super loud stuff, you're going to get a name for doing super loud stuff and you're going to get more people coming to you who want super loud stuff. You know, whereas I have this name for for not being that interested in that. And I have lots of people coming to me because they want something a bit more dynamic. Not ridiculously so. I think lots of people are surprised by how loud I actually master stuff when they kind of listen to it and compare it and analyze it. But I don't go beyond the point where I think it's going to be detrimental for the music. That, I realize, is not the position for everybody. And I mean, just recently, I had a close call where it got to a certain point and the artist was completely happy. And then the engineer came back and said, yeah, can we make it a few dBs louder, please? And I was like, oh, why is that? And he said, because of SoundCloud, because it's going to go up against other stuff in these playlists. And I kind of was stealing myself for a battle at that point. Luckily, I think the artist won and the, the problem went away. But if somebody, if it gets to that point where you've, you know, you've done the work and so saying no would actually mean giving them a refund or, you know, getting into a huge fight, which I don't think is going to benefit anybody. Um, usually at that stage, I just say, okay, I, I can do that for you, but I just request that you take my name off because I don't want to be, you know, associated with that. Yeah. And that can be quite effective because that can sometimes, you know, sometimes people, sh that, that shocks people. They're kind of like, what, really? You feel that strongly about it? So, and sometimes they, they will then go away and kind of reassess and come back. And go, you know what? Actually, maybe you, so, or they end up getting what they want and, um, you know, <laughs> I don't get people coming back to me saying, you're all about loudness and you did this, um, which would be annoying. Well, and it, it, I mean, if you threaten to take your name off of it or ask to have your name taken off, that's that's kind of a, you know, a shot across the bow just to say, no, I'm serious. Well, no, I, don't, I don't do it. Yeah, I don't do it in, in a nasty way. It's just, you know, it's just because you, it's, it's so rare, right? Because normally... It can all get resolved in the first, even if somebody comes to me to do an album and it's going to be a remote master where I'm never going to meet them. I would do the first song first or a song first. And, and then we have that conversation. It's like when you're in an attended session and you do the first uh, song and you get to a point, you turn around and say, okay, so what do you think? And they tell you what you think. And there's a bit of back and forth and you, you know, you sound each other out and find the perfect result you you do that long distance and nine times out of ten if you get that first song right then the rest of it just falls into place and and if you can't get to the something that everybody's happy with at that point then you can say well you know what maybe you should look for somebody else because i think we just hear this differently you know um and and that's all fine and it's the same when you say to people actually that's louder than i think this is going to work for this could you try it somewhere else you know the, even if they just say okay fine 
nobody's ever kind of given me the the feeling that they have any less respect for me because in fact quite the opposite you know most often they say well wow i really respect your integrity on that and you know three months later you get a recommendation from somebody else with this oh yeah th those people said you'd, you'd be great fit for this so i kind of think it all comes around and you can end up with a win-win situation at the end which is the best solution i like the idea of just putting it up in the front just to say or being very upfront about it saying dynamic range is incredibly important to me and i think it really does your music a great service to do it this way and if you want it loud maybe you better go somewhere else exactly and i i genuinely believe i mean this is the great thing now is that because when i first back when i started banging on about this uh in when was death magnetic it was like 2008 or something there was no loudness management i think it was 2009 i wrote a blog post because spotify was the the first streaming service to get going and they had normalization enabled by default from the get-go and i wrote a blog post saying spotify are going to end the loudness war probably a bit premature given that it is now 10 years or nearly 10 years later um and the, the war is still raging but i i still believe especially now spotify have reduced their <clears throat> loudness level which happened recently so you there is now a target you can aim for where you know that you, you it's safe to master at that level and it's going to sound just as loud as everything else on all the streaming services apart from soundcloud for the time being it's a genuine opportunity right because if you you can future proof your music because it's not going to go away it's not like they're suddenly going to decide it's a bad idea and stop doing it they're going to refine the algorithms they're going to tweak exactly how it works they're going to they all measure loudness in slightly different ways hopefully they're going to standardize on that the levels may go up or down over time but the concept is there and it's going to stay because if they turn it off it'll annoy users so they're just not going to do that so if you want your music to sound great in the place that most people hear it for the first time and that most people listen to it, using dynamics is the way to go. It's the new opportunity. You know, you used to use, it used to be the, the thing, you, somebody would come to me and they'd say, oh, why does song X sound, jump out at me so much more when I hear it on the CD changer in the pub? Um, and you'd say, well, it's probably because it's louder. And they say, okay, tell me more about that. Whereas now people come to you and they say, why does song Y jump out at me when I hear it online? And you say, well, it's probably because it's more dynamic. And they say, okay. Because <laughs> it's quieter. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I turn it around and say it's more dynamic, so it's a positive thing. But yeah, absolutely. If, if it was mastered quieter, it's got more peak headroom above the loudness level. It's got more opportunity to punch, have impact, you know, rise and fall, all the rest of it. That's the opportunity. That's the way that I'm offering to... I, you know, back in the day, it was kind of like I was slapping people's wrists saying, I don't do that. It's bad for the mute. And, you know, that would annoy people, understandably. Nobody wants to be told what to do by this kind of sort of school teacher, mastering engineer guy. Whereas now you can, I say complete honesty, this is the best thing you can do for your music because, you know, nobody's going to be listening to CDs in five years time. Well, a few people are, but they're going to be audiophiles who prepared to adjust their volume control. That's true. And in case in point for Father's Day, my, my family gave me the the Beatles, the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper on mm. CD. I've been listening to it in the car. And as I was coming home to do this interview, it struck me. I was like, well, hmm, I haven't listened to this on my uh, studio monitors. I, I wonder how loud this is because I was, I was obviously on my way home to chat with you. And I'm curious if these days, if in an effort to, well, I don't know about everybody else, but what about you? Do you master different versions for different mediums for people? Like if I came to you and said, here's, here's my record, master it. 
but I need a version that's going to work on Spotify. And I also need a version that's going to be a nice, uh, hefty uh, amount of loudness on a CD. Do you do that? Or do you just provide one common level that you think applies to all of those mediums? I, I like to do one version. Um, I was, that's always the way, you know, back in the day when we didn't have any of this streaming stuff to, to think about, you could do one master that would work on CD, that would sound great on vinyl, that would sound great on the radio, that would sound great on an AM FM radio, would sound great on a, a Walkman. <laughs> that was the way I was trained. And that's still, that's the way that I like to do it. I, I genuinely think it's possible. It actually means going a DB, two, a DB or two louder than the reference level for, for Spotify or wherever. But mm -hmm. if you do it well, you can absolutely get a great result with that. And it's still plenty loud on CD. I mean, it's going to be nowhere near as loud as stuff like Death Magnetic or Sia or Ed Sheeran or, you know, a host of any other mainstream names. But I mean, that's the interesting thing. So, so going back to when I say that I often, if I say to clients, you know, I, I actually, I think you'd be better going somewhere else. More often than not, they will say, well, look, just do as your version. We'll take a listen. So I do my master and I send it to them. They're like, well, that sounds fantastic. And it's, it's easily loud enough. And I think this is another thing that's happening. I feel like the the mastering profession have almost got backed into a corner where lots of engineers feel like if they don't push it as far as they possibly can, they're going to lose the gig to somebody else who did it louder. I mean, I know that's a concern and that, that happens to people. And that must be really, really, well, it's happened to me. It's really, really frustrating. So another thing I do is if people want me to do them a test master or whatever, I don't do those so often these days, but occasionally I will do and I say, okay, I'll do this for you on the condition that you listen to the raw files, sure, but you also listen to them loudness matched and I tell them to do the iTunes test. So yeah, I I think it's absolutely possible to to find a sweet spot where it works. Let's talk numbers in terms of, you know, whether it's a PLR number or LUFS or just, you know, where does it show up on the meter? Is it like you know, minus three or minus four, minus two, What, where, where's it at for you? Okay. So my advice is to not let the peak level go above minus one. And the reason for that is to avoid possible problems if it gets MP3 encoded or something else later on. All of that extra processing that happens downstream from the master can change the peak levels. And you can get this these things called intersample peaks, which are peaks that weren't there before but they are there after the MP3 encoding or whatever it is, and they can cause extra clipping. So that's a kind of safety limit. It also meets some of the audio specifications that are out there and like the mastered for iTunes specification. Having done that, I would then say, don't make the loudest bits any louder than minus nine LUFS. So LU is a loudness unit. FS stands for full scale. Mm -hmm. A loudness unit, one LU is the same as one dB in terms of turning things up and down. It's basic, An LU is basically like the RMS level that lots of people know about, but it's, it's a more refined measurement that takes into account how uh, our ears are sensitive, more sensitive at some frequencies than others. So it gives you a more reliable guide to loudness than RMS does. So yeah, so peak level at minus one, the loudest sections no louder than minus nine LUFS, right? Which means there's a difference between the peak level and the loudness of eight LU. And that's always been my rule of thumb. Some people may know about the TT meter. It's called a dynamic range meter. It's not really a dynamic range meter, but the, my recommendation with that was never to go below DR8. And this is the, the, the kind of the modern equivalent, if you like. Um, and in fact, it's uh, what my dynameter plugin uses, which is a this this meter that we came up with that's kind of inspired by the TT meter but takes it 
further. Yeah, I was going to say I wanted to talk about your plugin. So it's a uh, it's a PLR meter, right? Peak, peak to loudness ratio meter, essentially, right? Essentially, but it focuses on the short term peak to loudness, which we call the PSR. So the PLR means the peak to loudness ratio, the, what we were just talking about, the difference between the, the peak level and the loudness, but measured over usually a whole song or okay. maybe even a whole album. The nice thing about that is it's simple. You have one number, but the disadvantage can be that it, it doesn't give you any of the details. So you could have a song that kind of bubbles along at a fairly low level and then has a few extremely loud sections. You'll get a PLR value somewhere in between those and that PLR look, might look completely reasonable, but not tell you that actually the really loud bits were actually super crushed. So Dynameter measures the PLR, but it to give you that overall value and to kind of give you um, something to shoot at in terms of the streaming services. But it also, and the main thing it does is measure the PSR, which is how that peak loudness varies over time. So there's a bar that kind of uh, gets squashed when things get, when the loudness gets close to the peak level means you're probably crushing it a bit. Um, and in that case, it goes red or maybe brown or even gray if you push it too far. And then for more dynamic sections where there's a bigger difference between the peak and the loudness, uh, you have other colors, you know, orange, yellow, green, and blue. And then it, it kind of, it leaves a trace behind itself. So you can see the the history of this thing evolving over time. You can zoom in and out. So you can get a kind of a snapshot of the, the micro dynamics which means the the kind of the short term dynamics of a piece of music in real time as you as you play it, and you can optimize it however you like. I'll put a uh, for the listener. I'll put a, a link to Ian's plugin in the uh, show notes on the Working Class Audio page, uh, so you can check it out. I don't want to make our entire conversation about dynamic range, uh, but I do want to cap off a, just a couple thoughts on this and, and get your take on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an experience many 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 years ago, uh, probably around 1994 where I had done a record for, in fact, I think it was one of the first records I had ever done for a band. And I didn't really, I had a vague idea of what mastering was then. So once I mixed the record, the only difference that I, well, the mastering will say that took place was essentially I had two DAP machines and I played the source from one, ran it through, I think it was a drummer 2BQ and, you know, equalized it you know changed changed the the frequency response of the mix and then Mm -hmm. just transferred that to another dat and it stayed relatively quiet and when the cd came out i was so disappointed of how quiet it was and and a little disenchanted with the whole thing until it was played on a local college radio station in san francisco called kusf that's no longer around and that thing sounded i i cannot believe how enormous it sounded on the radio it just leaped out of the speakers my jaw hit the floor i realized oh because the radio is doing its thing and you know i put all the pieces together and realized that quieter in this case was better and then it got me thinking about older records you know older zeppelin records you know zeppelin is played constantly on the Mm -hmm. radio uh at least in america it is and it always older records seem to always sonically compete on the radio because I assume that because they're quieter, they have a, they have more dynamic range and therefore they come across as powerful as a modern record in some cases. I mean, you've discovered something there really early on that lots of people still don't know, which is that 
FM radio, you're absolutely right. That's FM radio doing its thing. They have their own processing in the chain. More often than not, it's made by a company called Orban. There's a thing called the Optimod that's pretty much everywhere. And it's a multiband compressor limiter clipper unit. And people actually use it to stamp their own station identity sound onto what's being broadcast. So as loud as Sia and Ed Sheeran are, they will still go through for FM radio, this this processing, to get them to fit in with the station sound. So stuff becomes more homogenous, more similar, and consistent level. Because, again, FM radio, they don't want listeners switching off because suddenly the level of a song drops, and they want a good hot signal level for areas where the reception isn't as good, right? So that the signal doesn't dissolve into the hiss and static. So it's not so much that the stuff was quiet per se, it's just that it was getting turned up by the FM broadcasters, the the broadcasting chain, to match everything else. And the loud stuff was getting turned down, just as we're talking about now online, except that online it's just a volume control, whereas back, well, even now, in terms of FM, it's an additional processing stage. But I've had exactly the same experience. The one that uh, springs to mind was, it was a few years ago now, so it'll date me slightly, but uh, funnily enough, it was a Simon and Garfunkel track. I'm going to forget which one now, but it came on immediately after. The point is, the modern thing sounded, it was just going along, kind of, you know, I was like, oh yeah, there it is. It wasn't Katy Perry, but it was an artist like that, you know. Um, and then the Simon and Garfunkel came on, and it did, it just leapt out of the speakers. And that's because the modern tune, let's say it was Katy Perry, had been squashed before it ever got to the FM processing. And then it got squashed some more and probably a bit more distorted um, and had a bit more of the life sucked out of it. Whereas the Simon and Garfunkel track was in the sweet spot when it hit the processing. The FM processor was perfectly optimized to do its thing, to make that thing sound great playing over FM radio. And it just blew the modern stuff out of the out of the water um so exactly that and it, it, it's still true you know we're never going to put this to rest we could talk for hours on this topic and dissect it and and really examine it but i want to ask you some other questions that uh, i really don't hear uh too much uh, mm-hmm. from you online and that is is uh well first of all you have a family right yep uh how many you have how many kids uh, i have two boys two oh you're in the same spot i'm in <laughs> <laughs> that's a spot it's a spot, right. Uh, how old? Uh, they're going to be 13 and 10 uh, in about a month's time. Okay. Well, I'm I'm in the ballpark. I've got 9 and 11. So okay. very close. How do you deal with work-life balance in your life and with your career and your family? <laughs> with extreme difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, so anybody who's been watching my website, I... We moved house in 2013, so what, four years ago now. And we're lucky enough that I was able to convert the garage, the garage, into the room where I'm doing this interview now. So it's not a proper studio. It was never intended to be. But I got really lucky with the sound. It actually works really well. And it's a really nice kind of environment. And it, if you imagine my house, there's kind of, there's a two-story section with the the living room and the the bedrooms and stuff. Then the the kitchen kind of juts out from the side of that. Then there was what used to be a carport, which is now storage space, basically. And then what used to be the garage, which is my room, which is on the end of that. So actually there's quite a lot of separation between me and the family. Um, And we're lucky that there's a fair bit of space on the other side before the the neighbours. So 
I can basically make as much noise here as I like um, and not, you know, kind of annoy them too much and not be too much disturbed by uh, the traditional goings on of uh, two small boys uh, <laughs> when, when they get home from school. So, no, I mean, I pretty much work straight through from first thing in the morning to about 3 p.m., then stop, kind of help with the school run, maybe ferrying them about, like, you know, they're getting to the age where they're doing more and more activities and stuff. Um, and then, you know, it could be helping with homework or whatever, or maybe I get lucky and get back in to do some more work. And I do stuff in the evenings. So yeah, it's a kind of a constant juggling act, I would say. Sounds a lot like my life. You know, it, you have your chunk, you chunk after they get, once they get to school and then when they get out of school, that's, you know, you have to stop for a bit, carry on into the night if, if need be. But it's good. I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's great. In fact, my wife is a, is a writer. She uh, recently got a publishing deal. So, I mean, that's really exciting. But she, so we both both work from home. So, you know, our life can be a bit lonely. But actually, it's really nice because you know we take a break in the middle, have tea or coffee together. You know, maybe take the dog for a walk, kind of catch up, help each other with whatever problems we might be struggling with, and carry on. You know, we can have lunch together. Um, it, it's it's great. And I don't, I don't think I could go back to working for anybody else again. Um, if even, even if all of this got horribly complicated, I'd just have to figure out some other way to make money. Well, uh, let's talk about that. Do you have a philosophy of money and how you deal with it and what your relationship is like with it? Did, any thoughts you want to impart on us? Uh, I'm just looking to make enough that I don't have to constantly worry about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that, that's kind of, I'm, I'm not motivated by money as a, as a thing. You know, I feel very lucky to be able to do work that I love and make enough money to have to make a great living and to, to be able to support the family. And, you know, it's not like we can have anything we want. It's not like we're super rich, but we're certainly pretty comfortable most of the time, <laughs> except when, you know, apart from the tough spots. It's not like I don't worry about it, but I, that's my goal is to not worry about it. I'm not doing this because I wanted to be an entrepreneur or run my own company, you know, I'm, I'm doing it because this was the only way that I could carry on doing what I loved. So I find all of that stuff, you know, I mean, I have an accountant who, who handles the, the kind of the sharp end for me, but even managing cash flow and invoicing and all that kind of stuff is it's not what I enjoy. It's not what I'm good at. You know, I, I would love to be able to kind of hand all of that off to someone else, but we're not in that position yet. So definitely uh, not my superpower. <laughs> No, I'd say it's probably my Achilles heel. <laughs> yeah, I think it is for a lot of people. What about health? We obviously have a job where we sit in front of computers or consoles all all the time. Do you struggle with health? Are you are you a healthy guy? Do you how do you approach that? Uh, it depends whether you ask me or my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm I'm not concerned about my health. I could stand to lose some weight, but I'm not you know over massively overweight. We I mean. I walk the dog a couple of times a day. We go swimming a couple of times a week. We have young kids. Uh, we've all just started sailing. So, you know, I'm pretty active. We we eat healthily for the most part, you know. And, you know, I try not to stay here locked to my desk. I do have some, uh, well, so for, for example, anybody who's seen my studio recently will, uh, a picture of it, a few people have commented on the, I have the monitor at a, a rakish angle. I think was what somebody said. It's kind of that the monitor is at a kind of 30 degree angle sloping away from me. So it looks a bit like a, the Slate Raven thing, you know, with the, 
angled touchscreen. It's not a touchscreen, but, and I did that um, to try and get it more out of the way of the speakers. But actually it's done wonders for my neck because everybody says that the monitor should be right up in front of you. When I do that, I kind of do this thing where I scrunch up the back of my neck and hunch my shoulders forward and tilt my head back. And it gave me terrible back and neck pain. And that was hugely improved by having the, the monitor angled. So there's kind of little things like that. Uh, you know, I have a decent chair, try and get up and take lots of breaks, that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, the angle of the, of the screen is definitely something that has affected me over time. And, and I do have a Raven sitting here in front of me and I'm still on the fence on how I feel about it. But one thing I do like about it, I like the monitor angle and I love having a big 27 inch screen that close where I could just sit up straight and I could still see it and not hunch over and lurch forward as I would in a, in a traditional monitor situation. Yeah. I, I don't understand that advice. You see so often the kind of the ergonomic display. And I think it, I mean, there are some people who swear by that and there are people who have kind of, you know, screens up on the wall above head height, you know, um, th the great thing I find about this is I can kind of sit completely upright and it's just, it's kind of like I was reading a book, you know, mm -hmm. my eyes just kind of naturally fall down. I guess, and some people have kind of said, oh, I couldn't do that. I'd be leaning my head forward all the time trying to look at it. So I guess it's just different things suit different people. But yeah, for me, it was a, it was a game changer. Who's your main mentor or, or, or did you have a series of mentors coming out? Um, I, so the, the company where I was trained was Sound Recording Technology. And the MD there was a guy called Dave Richardson, who uh, he went way back. It was, a, it was a vinyl pressing plant before it was a CD mastering facility. So they did all the picture discs for um, Virgin and some of the major, other major labels. They did like, I don't know, Prince and Madonna and all the rest of it. Um, but he, so he trained me initially, um, but... I'd hesitate to call him a mentor because we're good friends and he, there's there's some friendly rivalry between us. But Nick Watson, uh, who now runs Fluid Mastering in London, uh, had been working there for several years before I arrived. And we worked kind of side by side, but he was always, he was the guy who I would run things by, you know, and ask opinions of and get feedback from and respect his opinion. So I think I would credit him with a lot of the learning that I did in those early years. You know, I haven't been mastering very long. I've been mixing much longer than I've been mastering. There's a little bit of hesitation when I'm about to send something to a client where I'm, I think, oh boy, is this, you know, loud enough, bright enough, soft enough, dynamic enough? Is, is it have all the qualities that, that I think it has? And I'm curious, what are some of the mistakes you made early on that you really learned from that affected those, those particular areas of client satisfaction, I guess you could call it. Uh, it's a good question. I've always had this itch to make things sound right. So the first cassette deck I bought, I was seduced by the idea of having a double cassette deck so that I could copy cassette to cassette. And what I didn't think about at the time was that meant that probably my money was split 50-50 between the two transports and tape heads and all the rest of it that were in the machine, you know, rather than all being invested into in the one. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think it was, I don't think the quality of either of those cassette mechanisms in there was quite as good as it would have been if I had spent all the money on a single So that meant that I was always a bit disappointed by the high end response from this machine. And I would, 
I've told this story a lot, but I, I would take the cassettes apart and bend the metal prong to push uh, the tape head harder against the, the tape harder against the head to get better contact, to get better high frequency response. Um, <laughs> and I always hated the sound of vinyl when it got towards the end of the side because the distortion would increase. So I loved CD when it came out. And I, the first set of speakers I had was made by my grandfather and they were unequal sizes. I'm still not quite clear why that was. <laughs> he was a bit of a hi-fi buff, but, and I'm pretty sure that that meant that they had different frequency responses, which I wouldn't have kind of labeled it at that as a time, but I was always kind of tweaking these, the balance of the two, trying to get the perfect sound. So long way of saying, I kind of think I have this idea in my head of how stuff should sound. So my biggest first mistake when I started working at SRT was just that, uh, I mean, the first master I ever did, uh, it got sent through to, because I, funnily enough, you talked about mastering DAT to DAT. That's exactly what I was doing. The, the Umatic equipped the 1630 processor and all the stuff that you needed to create a CD master back then was so expensive. The the studios had two systems, but neither of them were in the studio that I was working in. So I would master from DAT to DAT and that DAT would then get copied in another studio to a Umatic tape and PQ encoded and all the rest of it, which was a kind of a layer of quality control on what I did. And I would get messages back occasionally saying, oh no, you need to do this differently or that's a problem or whatever. But yeah, the first thing I did with Nick, he came in and he said, okay, I can see what you did here, but these are BMW 801s, right? You know, these are speakers that cost as much as a small family car and are about almost as tall as you are. They have enough bass. They have enough treble. You don't have to hype any of it. <laughs> you know, it's just make it sound good and even on these, and then other speakers in the world will do that for you, right? So, you know, I basically just hyped this stuff up, which was the kind of the exact opposite. So I, I guess I learned to trust that monitoring then. So that was kind of an, an early thing. And then it was just this, yeah, this kind of process of, of feedback. I would do what I thought was right. And occasionally I would get corrective notes back from one of the other engineers. And over time that got happened less and less. But I still get the thing that you're talking about where I have some existing clients where I know that they're going to be happy with the work that I do and I know what they want. And, you know, it's, it's kind of well-established and I don't have to worry Mm -hmm. because even if there's something that they're not quite happy with, I know that they'll just say, oh, can we change this? And I'll go, yeah, and it'll be fine. But with a new client, yeah, there's always this, a little bit of concern of kind of, well, are they going to want it louder? Or have I met? Because if anything, I have a tendency to make things a little bit too bright, I would say. I'm made, I love bass as well. So, and, and, you know, there's this kind of broad spectrum of stuff out there. And there are people who like things kind of thick and warm and maybe a little bit muddy at one end. And there's people who like things kind of fizzy and shiny and a little bit tinny if you go too far at the other end. You know, the, the goal is to kind of find that, again, a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. Um, but you you never quite know. It's always frustrating, too, because you don't know what they're listening on and you can't really police that. And so sometimes, do you ever get notes back and you think, what the hell is this person listening on? Well, I tend, I, I will often prime people and say, you know, make sure you go out and listen to this on a wide variety of systems. Because, of course, if somebody's mixed it in their own studio, they've got it to sound as good as they possibly can in that space. And if there's something about that space that's not quite right, which in, in quite a lot of, you know, especially home studios, there could well be issues in the, the bass, say, or maybe the monitors are too bright or whatever. As a mastering engineer, if you correct for that and then send it back, chances are it's going to sound weird to them in the system where they just mixed and mastered it or, or mixed it. So... I always advise people to go, you know, listen to it in the car, on your hi-fi, on your personal media player, wherever, in a wide range of uh, situations. 
to, to get a full picture. And that helps with that. But, I mean, one of the things about mastering is that the goal is translation. So, you know, we keep talking about loudness, but even though I'm, I have all this, you know, dynamic range day and the plugins and all the rest of it, I still do, as a mastering engineer, regularly make stuff louder. It's one of the things I do. But that's all about finding the sweet spot where you get the balance between the verse and the chorus right so that, you know, the chorus still lifts and sings out at you, but you can still hear the verse when you're playing it in the car or whatever. And as well, when you get the level optimised, you're listening to it in the flattest region of our ears response. Forget about the room and the speakers, but there's a there's a certain level where the ears response is flattest, so you get the truest picture of how it sounds. And then if you get the EQ balance right, that makes it translate as well. Because let's say if somebody listens to everything on Beats headphones, they're basically hearing a massive hump at 100 to 200 hertz all the time. But everything they listen to has that. So if you give them something that's perfectly balanced and they put it on, the Beats will add the hump that they expect and it'll sound just the way that they expect it to. So... I don't worry. I mean, the funny thing, I was, what I was thinking when you were asking the question was the times when I get into trouble is when I try and second guess myself. You know, nine times out of mm-hmm. ten, if I go with my instincts, I'm close enough that they're happy. And if there are minor alterations needed, then nobody's concerned. Usually when I get myself tied up in knots, it's because they say at the outset, oh, I want it to be, huh, I don't know, uh, big and warm. And you think you, that conjures up these images in your head and you go, okay, I'm going to do it more this way than I might normally do. And then there was one particular instance where, see, to me, big and warm says a full extended bottom end. It turned out what this person went by warm was lots of fizzy, highly compressed top end. <laughs> and it, I have run into this problem so much in the early part of my career that I've learned to just take some of those descriptions with a grain of salt because i know if it if i if i pay too much attention to it it completely affects my judgment yeah and i and i don't do what i should do well there's an example that i'll always remember which is i mastered um a a best of compilation of tricky uh and you know great kind of trip-hop artist i guess he was um and the producer said to me that let me get this the right way around yeah, he said there was, he said, I don't want you to do anything to it because it had this great raw energy in the studio. And when they did whatever they did at mastering, it got out into the world, it, it lost that. It sounded too polished. It sounded too smooth. So I kind of thought, okay, that's interesting. I'll bear that in mind. And I, I started listening to the the the, the tapes, the, you know, the all the sources that he'd sent to me. And I thought, well, this sounds really smooth and polished to me already. If I do nothing like he said, I'm pretty sure he's going to... And, and at some point, it, I twigged that he'd mentioned that the studios that they'd been working in had Tannoy speakers. And I've always thought that Tannoys, to me, are a little bit... Have, have a little bit of a kind of... A little bit aggressive in the mid-range, um, possibly because mm-hmm. of the, the dual concentric design of the, the way they do it. And I kind of thought, okay, if he was listening on Tannoys, he's probably going to have been hearing that with more mid-range than is actually on the tapes, which is why, to me, this stuff sounds quite soft and refined. So if I do the exact opposite of what he told me to do and actually do more processing to the, because the other thing was I had, I had the original CD releases of some of these things that I was working on. You know, I had uh, Max and K, the original album, and I was listening to that as, and I was thinking, well, Black Steel, it sounds exactly like, it sounds to me like the mastering engineer didn't do anything, right? 
It sounds great, but it doesn't sound like there was. And I said, okay, so I'll ignore what he said about doing nothing. Go with my gut. Add this mid range, which I did think added some energy and some life to it, and made it sound more exciting and vibrant and all the rest of it. He was completely delighted with the result, but I had done the exact opposite of what he told me to do. So yeah, that is the, that's what you're saying. You know, you have to just treat all of that stuff with a huge pinch of salt. <laughs> it's complicated, you know. It's just that there's a lot. There's so much second guessing that goes on, and I wow. th yeah, I mean there is, but I think, like I say, you, I think you at the end of the day you have to trust your gut um, because. If the client is persuading you to do stuff that you think is wrong or that you don't like the sound of, that's a really tough position to be in, you know? So my job is this weird thing of people send me this stuff they've been slaving over for weeks or months or years, and I say in the space of four or six hours, oh, no, I think you should do this instead. Uh, and nine out of time, ten times, they they agree with me and they love it. I mean, how lucky is that? <laughs> um, but... Yeah, you have to, I have to just go with my gut and do what I think. And if occasionally they disagree, then that's the time when, okay, maybe I'm not the right engineer for this project, you know? And that's fine because they're, you know, it's their music. The whole thing about being a mastering engineer is you have to somehow have the intuition to hear where it is they want the music to be and help them get closer to that. You know, without, it's, it's not up to us to stamp, or I, I believe it's not up to the mastering engineer to stamp his or her sound on something. You know, it's just about help them achieve what they were going for originally. And you have to hear that and respect it, but still like the end result. What do you do to continually educate yourself on the craft of mastering, even after all these years? Do you, do you continue to research other ways of doing things or what other mastering engineers are doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's just a constant process of reading magazines, listening to stuff, you know, seeing what people are talking about, checking it out. I mean, the, the incredibly lucky thing these days is that you, pretty much anything you want to hear, you can hear within a few seconds of having read about it rather than having to, you know, go out and buy CDs or, you know, tra track this stuff down. So, and yeah, I'm, I'm watching out all the time for, uh, you know, I've got, there's a back when, you know, it was nice when you had a studio and you had a coffee machine that people would gather around and, you know, you'd chat about this and that. And they'd say, oh, have you tried this piece of gear or have you heard this or such and such? And these days the, the internet kind of takes the place of that. Like recently I discovered the, the TDR Nova EQ, which I really like. And it was just, I saw a few people recommending it. And then I saw a demo video on online and I thought I'd, I'd give it a try. Um, and uh, same same way, that's how I sort of started experimenting with some of the fab filter stuff. And, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's a funny balancing act because I, I'm also quite skeptical of this stuff because, that, you know, there are so many videos out there on YouTube that where somebody says, oh, this is my mastering chain. And it's, it's at least seven plugins long, if not 10. Whereas typically for me, the basic mastering chain is three or four plugins. Um, you know, I believe that mastering in essence, should just be about EQ, compression, and limiting. You can get nine-tenths of the results with just those three things. And there are other little things you you do, like maybe some, I don't know, saturation or a special processor or a bit of stereo width processing or that kind of stuff. But those are those are the details. The, the lion's share of the work gets done by these simple processes. It's not to say it's easy, but it's kind of straightforward. And so... On the one hand, I'm always fascinated by somebody saying, oh, what about this? You know, the next big thing, and I want to go out and try it out. On the other hand, quite often you, you take a listen and think, well, yeah, but it's just like that, but slightly different. I, I really believe that 
people are better advised and it's what I always advise people, you know, on the, on the website and on the courses that I run and stuff to learn how to use a few uh, plugins or bits of gear or whatever it might be really, really well and spend the time using those to get the best possible results than building up this huge library of stuff and spend your whole time just trying different EQs or compressors or whatever to try and get the results that you want. But yeah, I'm always looking out for and, and talking to other engineers and, you know, listening to what they do. Um, I think as, as anybody does, you know, if the, the, the time when you think you know it all and you can just get on and there's nothing else to learn is the time that you're going to fall flat on your face. One thing that I really admire about you is you seem to really pay attention to, obviously you pay attention to the, the things in the mastering process, but you also pay attention to the, the mediums to which these things are getting played on. Like you, uh, understand how Spotify and SoundCloud works and, and the other services, because that I think is, um, that's just as much a part of the the process and the chain and being knowledgeable in those areas of ultimately where these things are going, their destination. So I, I like that. I, and it causes me to want to pay a lot more attention to what these services are doing and how they're functioning. Because once you do, you can make better decisions in the mastering process so that the client's happy and their stuff sounds good in front of all their friends and peers. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that's true. The, uh, the ironic thing, though, just to play devil's advocate to that, advocate to that slightly, um, people often come to me and say, oh, uh, are we going to need a separate master for vinyl? Because they've read that the requirements of the vinyl format are different than the digital formats. It's, I mean, it's true. I do send for, if somebody wants vinyl, Cut. I don't do vinyl cutting myself. But if somebody wants some vinyl cut, I will send 24-bit files and I usually remove the final limiter and give it a little bit more headroom so that the, the cutting engineer has complete control over that aspect. But otherwise, over the years, I've done many, many masters that have gone off to Abbey Road and uh, Heathman's, may they rest in peace, and, and all kinds of other places and got the feedback back that, yeah, we, we just cut the master flat because it sounded great. And uh, I was talking to Bob Ludwig about this recently when I interviewed him for my podcast and he said exactly the same thing. If you, in this day and age, the irony is, if you do a master with the intention of making it sound great on vinyl, it will also sound great on all the other formats you can imagine, especially now that Spotify have adjusted their replay level. Spotify used to be much louder than the other streaming services. They've just adjusted that. So they're now much more in line with YouTube and Tidal um, and Pandora and, and, the, and the rest. So now that that kind of extra hurdle that you might be concerned about has become a non-issue. Yeah, you you could aim, you could say, okay, I want this to, imagine this is going to vinyl, even if it's not actually going to vinyl. You'll be in great shape. Um, and I kind of like the the irony of that in some ways. I'm, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of vinyl myself. I, I love the format. I grew up with vinyl. I love the artwork and the, you know, putting the needle in the groove and all the rest of it. But the the limitations of the, the format itself still bug me. But uh yeah, it's this funny situation. I mean, I, I agree. And, you know, there'll be something else coming up soon, you know, that we're all going to have to pay attention to, which is that continual learning thing that you're talking about. But, you know, that's what keeps it interesting, right? <laughs> um, I know it's late there and I want to let you get to bed. Uh, so thanks again. And, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. No, uh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Matt. Have a good evening. And uh, thanks again. Excellent. Cheers, Matt. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ian Shepard here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great information. Definitely has me thinking about levels, dynamic range, just, you know, it's good that we talk about this stuff.
because then we can arrive at, you know, possible new working methods, et cetera. So that's it. We are out of time. So let's thank, of course, Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Chuck Smith, and Mr. Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Gearslets.com, and Universal Audio. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. Hey, it's hot out there in the world. Stay cool and take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.